Let's look to God's word here together today. We're resuming the series in Luke. I know that in December it felt more like a Christmas series, and and in a sense it was, but we actually were beginning a series in the Gospel of Luke, and you can see the subtitle on the screen, A Walk with Jesus. As I was doing some preliminary study, one of the commentaries that I was reading through referred to the Gospel of Luke as a bit of an invitation to just walk with Jesus through the days of his earthly ministry, and I thought that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, many of us feel great pressure to be running all kinds of directions right now, and I actually want you to think of this study in the Gospel of Luke, not as another athletic event where you've just got to you know, deal with the uh, the, the oxygen deprivation you're feeling and the, the buildup of lactic, lactic acid in your muscle tissue, but rather it's a walk, and all of us can walk with Jesus. And we come today to chapter 3, and right out of the gate, there's a, a bit of a, uh, an image that is created in our minds, and we'll get there in just a moment as we read it, but it speaks of a wilderness, Some of you have visited Israel, and you know you can visualize the Judean wilderness, but most of you have driven that stretch of highway from Price down to Green River. I mean, we might as well be driving across the surface of the moon. And if you look up in a dictionary the definition of a wilderness, you will read words like these, an uncultivated, uninhabitable, and inhospitable region. Your worst fear would be to run out of gas or to have a flat tire or your car just to shut down on that stretch of Highway 191 between Price and Green, Val- or Green River, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a wilderness. But you know, a wilderness can also refer not to a physical or geographical region. It can refer to a position in life, a position of disfavor, especially when we begin to think in, in political or cultural contexts. And a phrase we're actually going to encounter in this biblical text, this is where it came from, but it's used, broadly speaking, and some of you may have used it as your your frustration grew that you were trying to vocalize things, whether concerns or speak truth into a situation or give counsel or advice, and nobody was heeding it, and you would say, I feel like I'm just a voice in the wilderness, And when we say that, we are referring to a setting where there is unheeded truth or unheeded advocacy for reform or unheeded messaging. The voice is clear and strong, but it falls on deaf ears. There's no one who responds. And often because the heart and soul have not been cultivated and prepared for the really important truth. Well, that's that's actually what's taking place here in Luke 3. So I want you to follow along as I read the first 20 verses. And I want you to pay attention to the use of this little phrase, a voice crying in the wilderness. Or notice when that term itself, wilderness, appears a couple of times here. And then let's ask the Lord to bless our study of his word this morning, and prepare our hearts even for his table. This is the word of the Lord, Luke 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, 
That's not Texas. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And may God bless the reading of his word in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are that you are true to your purposes and promises. You are fulfilling eternal purposes in the life of this unusual man and great prophet. But more than John, you were about to fulfill eternal purposes through your one and only Son. How thankful we are that you are the God who came to us. How thankful we are that you have paid the debt of our sins in full. And we've sung of that this morning to our great joy and delight. How thankful we are that Jesus Christ lived the life we could never live and fulfilled the law for us. How thankful we are that there is good news for the children of deadly snakes. Oh, how we pray that on this day we would know the conviction of your Holy Spirit for our sin as is necessary. But dear Holy Spirit, we pray that you would not leave us in that overwhelming guilt and shame of conviction, but that you would move us very quickly to repent of that sin, 
to put our faith in the Son and His finished work for us to receive the forgiveness of sins that come so powerfully and mercifully from the Father and to know with all confidence that our eternity is secure, that we are, in fact, brought from death to life, that we are no longer children of the, of the serpent, but we are children of the Most High God. We beg you and pray that by your Spirit you would cause these truths to live in our hearts to the glory of Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, a wilderness is a place that needs good news. And Luke is establishing here in these opening verses not just a date so we would have a, a good idea of when these events began to take place, but if we were living in the time that Luke wrote this gospel, many of us would have been alive to remember the names of these powerful politicians and these two particular religious leaders. Israel is a political wilderness at this point. It's under the rule of Rome. That's the significance of Tiberius Caesar. Locally, it is also under the rule of Pontius Pilate, who, will, who we will become better acquainted with as the gospel story unfolds. But Pontius Pilate was a cruel and godless local governor. One author writes that his cruel behavior and disregard for Jewish customs began immediately upon his arrival in Palestine in A.D. 26. And right after Luke mentions Pontius Pilate, he makes reference to Herod. Now, this is not the same Herod who was alive when John and Jesus were born about three decades before this. That was Herod the Great. This Herod is descended from that Herod. He's also known as Herod Antipas. Now, he was not, he was not the, the kind of cruel man that Herod the Great was. He's referred to by some historians as more of an astute politician, more temperate than Herod the Great, though he was often indecisive. I thought that was interesting. His rule, generally speaking, was peaceful, and like many other Herodian rulers, he too was a builder. But he's not a friend of God's word or God's plan. A couple of other rulers are mentioned, and we don't need to take time with them. You can do a little bit of research. You won't find much about them, but all five of these names that are listed here are reminders that Israel is in a political wilderness. It's also, and, and this is a more serious problem, in a spiritual wilderness at this moment. And Luke takes time to mention the two high priests who had served first Annas, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And you need to remember, although we will meet these characters again by the end of the gospel, at this particular moment, they have leveraged their privileged position as Israel's spiritual leaders to extort money from the people, to, to pack their own coffers with vast riches, and they've turned the whole sacrificial system at the temple into a money-making machine. And when we come to Luke 19, Jesus himself will enter the temple and he will overturn the tables and he will get a, a little bit of a stampede moving through the temple and he's making a powerful point that this house of God, which should be a house of prayer for all people, has become a house of merchandise that enriches a few privileged people. And I was thinking actually earlier while we were singing the beautiful lines uh, of now why the sphere that last stanza we were singing, and I did a little screenshot of the lyrics here. I'm not checking text messages. <laughs> but it struck me because of, 
of just touching on these, these scoundrel high priests when we sing, be still my soul and know this peace, the merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. And all these two high priests did was to extort the little bit of wealth that your average Jewish person would have had and make their own lives comfortable. Oh, what a wilderness, spiritually speaking. But despite all of that, God is on the move. God, from long ago, had prepared a prophet. And he comes out of obscurity. Yes, John, who is the son of Zechariah, who also is living in the literal wilderness at that moment, is raised up by God from among the ordinary, even obscure people to assume this eternally significant role. Remember his father, Zechariah, back in chapter one, had prophesied with joy over the son, this, this most uncommon birth that he and his wife in their old age were privileged to participate in. But among other things, he had said, you, child, shall be the prophet of the Most High. And the wilderness is not just a matter of, well, you know, that's where he happened to live at the time. No, that's actually according to the prophecy of Isaiah, and we'll come back to that from chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And, and what gives us great joy, though, is that God has a message. Look at the beginning of verse 2. This is really... This, this is worthy of just thinking on for a moment. The word of God came. It's God's word. It's not John's word. And it's God's word for those who live in a political and religious wilderness. Who feel every day the pain of leaders who exploit them and extort them. Who neglect them. Who mistreat them. Now let's notice several things about this word of God. First of all, the terminology itself indicates to us that this word is a pronouncement from God. There's a term here that appears in significant uh, scriptures that just remind us it's not even a collaborative word where John and God got together and, and hammered this thing out. No, this is a word that is coming from God. But notice verse 3 where we learn more specifics about it. What is God pronouncing through John? Well, John actually goes into all the region around the Jordan uh, the, the very region ruled by Herod and Pontius Pilate and a couple of the other tetrarchs. He's just, he's just ma- making his way through those communities. And what is he doing? He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, God is not intent on correcting a political issue or even a religious tradition issue. He's interested in going to the souls, the very hearts of individuals who are living in a greater wilderness than they can fathom at this particular moment. He's sending his prophet into the regions that are currently governed uh, by powerful political and religious figures, but there's something else that he wants to do. Now, a, a brief word about John's baptism. The baptism of John is distinct from the baptism that we Uh, as followers of Christ practice. We're thankful for this. You should know and understand, like this this was a really uh, grand moment in God's scheme of things. We don't baptize people, uh, as as the terminology says here, uh, uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's included. But baptism, in in the Christian sense, 
post-Great Commission, Matthew 28, post-death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, actually baptizes us into the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and that's, that's not the particular focal point that John has in view here. And Paul will even say, and Luke recorded this in, in the second book that he wrote, Acts 19, verse 4, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. So it's ultimately pointing people to Jesus, but it is a different kind of baptism. Oh, there's so much more there, uh, but, but it would be a diversion for us right now. Let's focus, though, on the two words, repentance and forgiveness. Very briefly, and we are going to circle back to this, so don't be frustrated if I leave a lot on the table. This is, this is a call of God to repentance. It's a call of God to repentance. Now, repentance first begins as a change of thinking a change of mind, a change of heart. But as we're gonna see in a few minutes, it always results in a change of life, change of direction. And then secondly, it's a call to receive the forgiveness of sins. And what's clearly implied is that it's God's forgiveness that everybody's in need of. It's not John who's forgiving people. It's not another religious leader who's forgiving people. They're not even being instructed to forgive themselves. No, this is God's forgiveness they're in need of. They need God to actually clear the record of their sins and the real debt that they have accumulated by their sins. Second thought about this word, and we're coming back to all of that. This word is a fulfilled promise of God. Did you notice in verse four that Luke gives us this perspective? As it is written. So John's going through the region, proclaiming this baptism of repentance and forgiveness. He's doing that because it was actually written 750 years prior to that by Isaiah, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes the portion, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what does he cry? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level, uh, level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of the God. He's not talking about you know, a, a highway department move down through the, the, the rough desert to make a highway that people could literally travel on. He's talking about a spiritual work that needs to happen. It's a spiritual work of preparation. It's the work of repentance and forgiveness. The word is a fulfilled promise of God from long ago. I know some of you wrestle as I do. And I wrestle less in some ways right now than I have historically, but I still, I still have those moments where I think, oh, God, are you really gonna fulfill your word? This is another reminder that, yes, sometimes he waits 750 years, but he always fulfills his promises. There's a third thought regarding this word from God. The word uh, is a confrontation from God. Verse seven. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Apparently, he had not taken Andrew Carnegie's course, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, that's an old, uh, no young person even cracked a smile at that point, like, Andrew Carnegie, who is he? Ask your, ask your grandparents.
It's not very nice to call people the offspring of deadly snakes, but that's what he did. From Genesis 3 forward, there is a distinction between the righteous seed who descended from Adam and then through his son Seth and an unrighteous seed that actually descended from the serpent through Cain even up to this point. Jesus will have a similar confrontation with Pharisees, really religious people, where he'll just tell them straight up, you are of your father, the devil. I mean, this is an in-your-face confrontation of a spiritual magnitude. Spiritually speaking, John is pressing this point that these are the offspring of the unrighteous line, the serpent. It's hard to come face to face with our true nature and character, isn't it? Kristen and I were actually watching an old rerun of Law and Order this week, and There's a line that stood out to both of us. Kristen commented on it, but it was one of those scenes where there's a mom whose son has just been arrested and she's speaking to one of the detectives and she says, he's a good boy. And the detective stops cold in his tracks and he's like, he's not a good boy. A good boy would not have robbed a dying man. A good boy would have called 911 for help. I've thought about that since then. There's something in not just every mother's heart that wants to see the best in people. There's something in all of us that wants to believe the best about ourselves. But God, in his great kindness, sometimes comes through a prophet like John and says, let's talk about what you really are. John steps right into the middle of this crowd and confronts them at the heart of their identity. Many of us are terrified to actually see ourselves as we truly are and admit it. Certainly nobody wants to be known as a snake. I mean, we use that terminology when we want to characterize somebody as a bad guy. Oh, he's such a snake. Well, where does snake-ness come from? We know, it's tied to evil. So we are forever denying that we have sin or sometimes we redefine our sin. Our culture's doing that on all kinds of levels right now, isn't it? John would be canceled in such short order it would make our heads spin. Nobody wants to be known at this point in this particular way, and so we deny our sin, we redefine it, we sometimes shift responsibility for it. Well, if you hadn't said, or if they hadn't done, sometimes we just hide it outright. But you know what? You can't get away from those true thoughts forever. 
Sometimes God wakes us up in the middle of the night to say, can we talk? And you're terrified. And so you, you grab another handful of melatonin. And it's not because you need to sleep so much as you don't actually want to be alone with your thoughts and the God who created you. You're terrified. But you know, this is actually God's kindness because he never confronts just to be a bully. He always confronts us so we can deal honestly and humbly with the realities and follow him out of the wilderness and into a place of life. There's a fourth thing about this word. It's a word of warning. Doesn't get any easier for the crowd. You kind of wonder why they're all hanging around. And it's not just that John is a bit of a sideshow because he's dressed in camel hair and he eats locusts and honey. We know that from other gospel records. But now he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, like so many of the Old Testament prophets before him, John makes a clear reference to a future season in history where God will, in fact, pour out his judgment on the earth. And if you go back through the Old Testament, the phrase you should look for specifically is the day of the Lord. It's terrifying. And it's coming. And you know, the fact that it has not yet arrived, even in 2,000 years since John the Baptist was preaching these powerful sermons on the backside of the Judean wilderness and desert, should not lull you into a sense of security, a false sense that all these are just, you know, religious myths and legends. There's no wrath of God that's coming. There's no day of the Lord that's just around the corner. No, God in his mercy has given our generation, as he has many generations preceding, the opportunity to see their true nature as it is, the sin as it truly is, and flee not just from the wrath to come, but to flee into his arms that we might repent and be forgiven. How would anybody ever know that they're safe from the coming wrath? Paul, who was Luke's traveling companion through so many missionary journeys and such, wrote two letters to the Thessalonian church in the first century, uh, probably wrote them about the same time that Luke was setting down the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But in the first letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter one, verses nine and 10, he deals with this coming wrath of God and says in very plain and straightforward terms, Jesus alone is the one who delivers us from wrath to come. You and I can't deliver ourselves. You can't bunker yourselves beneath your basement from the wrath of God that is to come. You can't become super religious and ultra conservative and just maintain all kinds of moral standards and and rescue yourself from the wrath to come. It comes only through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But I get ahead of myself in the good news. Go back to the text. Here's the fifth thing that we observe about this word. It is a call to repent of sin against God. This word from God through John is a call to repent of sin against God. Now, repentance is a major theme in Luke's gospel. I'm glad for that because I, I even at this moment, feel a sense of frustration that I want to say a lot more than I probably need to say at this particular moment. But here's, here's the entryway into it. I alluded to this a moment ago. At its most basic sense, it begins with a change of mind. 
You've lived with certain ideas or notions or opinions about your life, uh, about the work that you do, the words that you say, the thoughts that you have. And then God, by his Holy Spirit, enters your world and he brings the weight of his word upon your soul and you begin to recognize that some of your thoughts are actually a violation of his law. That some of your words are a clear rebellion against his standard of righteousness. That even your motives are corrupted by sin and you begin to feel the weight and pressure of God's conviction of your soul. And this shift in your mind could mark the beginning of a real repentance. But it doesn't end just with a change of mind. It always translates into an actual turning. Turning away from sin, turning to something else. New Year's resolutions, in a sense, would illustrate repentance. Some of you made resolutions this year. Maybe you said, I have got to stop eating so many cheese puffs. They are killing me. My stomach hurts all the time, and my fingers are permanently stained orange. This has to change. In January 1, though the temptation to just munch on a few more was raging, you cleared the cabinets and and every known secret stash of Cheetos or cheese puffs or whatever it is that, that you were repenting of. You threw them in the garbage or you poured water over them so they dissolved into the nothingness that they are. But you said, I've got to change. And real repentance will run something similar. There's a contrite heart, as one author writes, that comes to God for forgiveness, in submission to Him, and makes a change of direction. And you know, you might be able to scrub the orange food color from your fingers as you repent of your cheese puff addiction, but you do not have the power, neither do I, to cleanse your heart from the deep stains that sin has left. But there's power in the blood of Christ. That's why we will joyfully celebrate the Lord's table in just a few minutes. That's why we'll drink down just a small portion of grape juice in this case, but as a symbol of the cleansing, life-giving power of the blood of Jesus. I know John's not preaching all of that. He simply says, look at verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see how it's gotta be more than just a change of mind. Like he's saying, get busy. And then he inserts this really important warning against relying on your religious heritage. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's a form of self-justification. Back in November, we had the opportunity to visit family back east and spend time with my 87-year-old father. And he shared one of those formative core memories from his childhood. His grandfather, Arnold Brooks, lived in Michigan when my dad was a little boy. And uh, one or two times a year, they would try to make the drive from farmland of Illinois up to Michigan and just enjoy visiting. 
And the particular memory that my dad shared was of sitting at the breakfast table, not just waiting for the food to be served, but waiting for his grandpa to come and sit down. He said, we would not dare to eat a bite of food, even if it was already, until grandpa came and gave God thanks. And he said, one of my earliest memories of my grandfather with his rich baritone voice praying in thanksgiving to God and praying in such a way that even as a little guy, I had a deep impression of my soul that my grandfather knew God, that they talked, and when he prayed, we were entering heaven. What a core memory. I praise God for that. Because that would be my great-grandfather who, who actually died a month before I was born, never even met him. But imagine if you loved me enough to step into my world and say, Danny, there's a particular sin issue that we've noticed, and it, we, we are begging you to repent of that sin and make significant life changes. And I say, do you not know whose son I am? I'm the son of James. Who's the son of Virgil? Who's the son of Arnold? And Arnold was a God-fearing man. I mean, you, you'd be mystified. Like, what, what does your great-grandfather have to do with your sin? But you know, there were many people who were hiding in the religious genealogy. Well, I'm the descendant of Abraham. What do you mean I need to repent of my sins and find the forgiveness of God and flee from the wrath to come? And John's saying, it, it doesn't matter if Abraham is your father, grandfather, whatever point he is in your genealogy, every person born in their sin needs to repent and seek the forgiveness of God. John goes on to say, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Who, who are the trees in that image? His, some of his hearers. He's like, you, you don't even realize you're about to be Judged by God, hewn down as it were. You feel secure because Abraham is you know, somewhere back in your genealogy, but the reality is your sin is great and God's wrath is real and judgment is at the door. You know, true repentance is a matter of the heart that results in change in the way we live. Now, now look at what happens. This is sweet. The crowds who are feeling the weight, they begin to ask, and this phrase uh, appears three different times, doesn't it? What shall we do? Verse 10 tells us the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Let's take a, a brief look at what real repentance looks like. Well, here are some examples. I, I would call this first one the fruit of generous love. And I'm gonna cast all of these uh, fruits of repentance in terms of love because love is the fulfillment of the law. That's another discussion, but it struck me as I was reading through this. And so John says to these crowds who ask him, what then shall we do? Here his answer is in verse 11. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. What are they repenting of? Stinginess, unwillingness to share. You could probably describe it in a number of things, but they're turning away from that neglectful self-centered attitude where there's generosity that's overflowing. The next group, the tax collectors, they also say, what shall we do? And in verse 13, he says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Well, that's the fruit of what I'm gonna describe as equitable love. 
Jesus never quibbled with the whole taxation thing. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give, give to God the things that are God's. So it wasn't wrong for the tax collectors to, te- to, to uh, collect the taxes that they had been authorized to collect. What was wrong is they too were exploiting and extorting. And that leads us to the third group, the soldiers, who, if this is interesting to me, some believe these are not actually Roman soldiers, but Jewish soldiers soldiers who may have had responsibilities in keeping the peace in Jerusalem and such, but it's another, we, we, we just don't know. But John says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. You know where my mind ran? To some of the government employees who supposedly work for us who are just multi, multi, multi-millionaires after years of, of, of public service. We know what they make annually. How in the world does a person who makes you know, just under 200000 a year multiply that over you know, 20, 30 years to be a gazillionaire? And I think to myself, well, they're just doing what generations have done. And you know, God is aware of it. Would call them to repent in the same way. These soldiers worked for their communities and yet were exploiting that privilege. The change of mind and heart is visible then in the way these particular groups are called by John under the authority of God to begin to live their lives. Now jump to verse 19 because there's actually an example of an unrepentant heart. Do you see it here? Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, that is by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, uh, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Here's a very brief background. So Herod's first wife was the daughter of the king of Arabia. And uh, during a trip to Rome, Herod lodged with his brother and fell in love with Herodias, who was his brother's wife, And they reach this agreement that they'll each divorce their present spouse and then marry each other. And John had the boldness to step right in the middle of it and say, this is sin, you should repent. And and Herod, like many powerful people, is like, don't tell me what's sin. I'll show you who has the authority. And he puts John in prison. That's ultimately gonna result in John's beheading and that's another story. But you notice several things here, don't you? This is what unrepentance looks like. First of all, it's a rejection of God's conviction and warning. There's a refusal to turn from the actual sin. And then there's some kind of a shutdown of of God's message or messenger. I, I could illustrate it this way. You read in God's word, it's a particular activity or thought pattern or even motivation that you are guilty of. It's sin and you're guilty of it and you say, no, thank you. You can be polite about this this unrepentance. You can also be a, a raging fiend, but it amounts to the same thing. That's what unrepentance looks like and it led to a tragic end for Herod Antipas. Well, there's a call here to receive forgiveness and we're real close to wrapping this up now. The call to receive forgiveness from God. Going back to even the opening verses, John is proclaiming this message. All of these people, the crowds, the tax collectors, the soldiers, you and me are in need of God's legal release of our sin debt. 
Not one of the powerful people mentioned in the first verse or two has the power to do this. But God does. And that's what makes it so exciting as this expectation builds. Look at verse 15, and I think there's both a a positive aspect and a negative aspect, but probably more so the negative. Their expectation, as verse 15 mentions, is that this Christ is going to make his appearance and he's going to clean house. We really are out of time to develop this in the way I would want to, but, but they begin to wonder, John, this powerful prophet, are you the Christ? And he puts that to rest. And, and let's just touch on these things very, very briefly. First of all, he says, Christ is coming. Oh, that's good news for people in the wilderness. And this is what makes the Christian gospel so different from every other religious message or way of salvation on planet Earth. Most of those are basically a strategy for how you, in your weakness or unworthiness or sinfulness, can make your way to God. The Christian gospel says the God of heaven comes to you. That's the power of the incarnation. And that's really good news. And John, don't miss this. John says he is coming. And when he comes, he actually will wield a superior power, even to a prophet like John. John says he's mightier than I. He's strong and powerful in ways that I am not. He wields an authority, an authority from heaven, and that's actually what makes him so different from Annas and Caiaphas, those failing high priests. John sweetly says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. That's the work of a household slave. And John says, I... I'm not even worthy to be his slave. It's challenging to think through what what is my estimate of myself? What's your estimate of yourself? There's not one of us here who's worthy to be the slave of Christ. And yet when he comes, he's not just gonna recruit us or hire us into that status of slave. That would be privilege enough. He's actually gonna work in a way where we become the adopted children with full rights, full benefits, the full heirs of the kingdom. He makes us his brothers and his friends. We'll explore this more in the series in Luke, but the last couple of thoughts very quickly. Christ ministers a superior baptism, and it's, it's good and bad. When John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, um, we'll, we'll have to unpack this in the days to come, what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The fire likely speaks of judgment and because that's where John takes it in verse 17, but the Spirit of God uh, will begin to separate the wheat and the chaff, to use John's analogy, the wheat to, to blessing, the chaff to unquenchable fire. But it's God come in flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, who ministers with superior authority and a superior baptism. Verse 18 says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It doesn't seem like good news in every way, but it really is if it leads you to the place of forgiveness and eternal life. It really is good news if it leads you out of your sin and to a table such as is prepared for us today. I'm gonna ask our deacons to make their way to the front. They'll be serving all of us together. And as we're preparing for the Lord's table, I want to remind you that it's the Lord himself who inaugurated this really special celebration. There's bread here and there's a cup. 
The bread is a symbol of the broken body that Jesus offered on the cross for our sins. He underwent the punishment, the condemnation, the torment that you and I deserve for our sins. But he's willing to take all of that and make it his own so that you and I never have to. You say, how do I receive that gift by faith? You say, surely there's something I have to do. Nope, he's done it all. Now we respond in multiple ways, but you can't add something to the death of Christ today that would make it more effective for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's what the cup is symbolic of. It was his blood that was shed. And you don't mingle your blood with Jesus. You don't mingle your suffering or your sacrifice with the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus. It's all his. And so by faith, we receive that work that Christ did without adding anything to it. Now this is the Lord's table. It's not a gospel hope table. It's not a Baptist table. It's the Lord's table. You don't have to be a member of our church uh, to join and, and celebrate the life and death of Jesus Christ. But you do need to be a true follower. How do we know that? Well, if you have put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, that's part of it. And if you are walking, not in perfection, but in consistent fellowship with him, that's also part of it. There's another book in the New Testament that describes how we can take the, uh, the Lord's, participate at the Lord's table carelessly or in an unworthy manner. And you would do that by basically just being a hypocrite. Well, I'm a Christian. You say it, but you're not living like it. And then to come to this table and act as if your faith is in Jesus and you really are following him, but you know, you, you live like a, a child of a deadly snake uh, the rest of the week. Well, that would be an unworthy manner. Please don't do that. Some of you may say, oh, I'm not sure about the things you just said. Then just watch. And we're not keeping track of who does and who doesn't. Uh, but the, those of us who know the Lord are amazed that he would forgive us for all of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and give us this gift of eternal life. This is precious. And we're glad you're here, and we hope that by faith you can participate.